Do you remember the first fight you were ever really a part of? Can you, maybe it was yesterday. You're like, that was the, that was like the first one. But can you, maybe it was a long time ago. Can you remember the first time that you had that feeling inside that conflict was overwhelming and you were going to have to to face something. I don't know if it was with your your mom or your dad or a brother or sister or a best friend at school or that bully that wouldn't leave you alone. But that first one, the first time that all of those feelings of fight or flight, can I win this? Do I punch him in the face? Kind of like feelings overwhelmed you. Can you remember it? Because I was asking myself that question when I was assigned James chapter 4 to talk through today because that was the discussion when Jeff was going to go and be away for a few weeks. It was pick any topic that you want in James chapter 4 and you'll be safe. And I'm like opening the Bible and I look at James chapter 4 and it's like fighting against worldliness. I'm like there's nothing that I pick from James chapter 4 that's going to be safe this morning because it is a, a chapter about fighting. And in July of 2016, a conversation about fighting is not safe because we're in a world at war. We can't we can't open anything that has any conversation about the happenings around us without us quickly reading something about a fight that's happening. Read something about the Middle East, there's a fight going on. You want to talk about France, we've got a fight going on. England in a battle. Rio, this Olympics, we're fighting over that. Do we even talk about the two conventions that just confused all of us? Open your Facebook page and people are fighting over whether or not we should even be allowed to play Pokemon Go. In church on Sunday, like there's probably this is probably like a poke stop right now. And there's like some of you have your phones out, like destroying things right now, capturing good on you. Go for it. Fights are all around us. This is a season where if there's not a fight close to you, you're probably not paying attention. Or you're refusing to engage and get involved because there there are fights everywhere. And below the surface of happiness and fun and excitement and King's Island trips and movies that we try to just kind of disconnect ourselves from, there's just fights all over the place. And if we think it's just in politics or world news, we would be quick to remember that our hometown football team walked off the field in the midst of fighting this season, whether you're a Bengals fan or not. That was it. That's how we walked off. If you're a Cincinnati football fan. There are fights around us. And I for one don't need any more, right? It's like it's it's hard enough to navigate through the fighting that goes on inside of me as a human trying to figure out how this kingdom story works and how I live it out in a way that honors God. I've got enough fighting going on internally that the external stuff is a little overwhelming. And so when I looked at James chapter 4 and I started to see that this was a, a chapter on fighting, I thought, oh no, I don't want to burden us more this morning. I, I hope, I hope somehow we can find joy in the midst of a conversation about 
the fighting that is internal and external around all of us. Because maybe if we could find some joy in the midst of the chaos, we could find a kingdom that's standing in the middle of this chaos. And it, and maybe, just maybe in that kingdom, there's a light on for us and we could be drawn to the light in the middle of darkness that's all around. And if we could find that light, maybe that light is reproducible and then we could take that light with us back into the darkness that we came from. And it wouldn't be so dark anymore. So that's my hope this morning, that as we discuss fighting all around us, that we could find some light in the darkness. And maybe instead of capturing that light and holding on to it because we would be afraid that someone might steal it from us, maybe we could believe the truth this morning that light has entered the darkness and the darkness has never overcome it and that light should be shared. And if we can do that in the midst of fighting, maybe, just maybe... Some of these chaotic conversations and some of the madness that is around us will be drawn into a kingdom that is not of this world and we will see something change. That's my hope. And in writing that and starting to think on that, I was drawn back to my first fight that I remember. And I'm sure that if my parents were here, they would tell you about some other fights that we had when I was younger. But I don't remember those. Maybe because they were so covered in grace or maybe they traumatized my parents more than me. I'm not sure. But I probably wasn't an easy kid, so I'm sure that we fought a little bit. I was pretty headstrong. I pretty much wanted it my way all the time. And I was pretty much always right. I don't know if you had a kid like that. If you were a parent of a kid like that, on behalf of us, I'm sorry. We just wanted to be leaders. And we probably just train wrecked you, like, repeatedly. But that was me. It was always my way. It was, I was never wrong. I was probably always wrong. But I remember in sixth grade going to church camp. I'm not sure if you ever had the church camp experience, but it's the, the, the moment where your parents pack you up for a week and hope that someone is going to overwhelm you with the presence of Jesus so much that a different child comes back home to them and that their family is at peace. And they send you into these really random places that have no resources that you would ever normally utilize. And all the things that you don't want, especially where the camp that I went to, there was no air conditioning anywhere on the camp. It was in the middle of a cornfield and tobacco field in Kentucky. So even if you went out to play like soccer or softball, you hit the ball and it went into like this tobacco patch. And then so you're like, you're like, I would never really do this, but I'm here at the camp I attended. They didn't even have a pool. Um, they took a slip and slide, which was a pile of trash bags, hefty trash, trash bags that they pinned into the side of what they called a mountain, which was like a, a little hill. And then they had it run down to the bottom of the hill. And our youth ministers were so smart that they didn't really realize that at the bottom of the hill is where like the sewage ran. I know. And so they would like lube up the the slip and slide with dawn dish detergent and then spray it down and we would slide down it into like the the muck and then come back up and only at camp do you call that fun because we'd be like yeah that was awesome i smell so bad and then back to the top of the hill because there was nothing else to do i know it was a terrible camp (laughs) You're like, what is it? Not all camps are like that. I actually run camps now. Like, that's my job. Um, and I'm so thankful for that camp that I went to in sixth grade because I've built all of our camps the opposite of what that was. 
Like, let's have better things than sewage slip and slides to experience, because that was terrible. And I spend most of my times at camps, they're not all like this, but the camp that, that I attended, that, that was, it was about it. And then there was a basketball court, and we would play a little bit of basketball, um, because it was Kentucky, and that's the only sport you're allowed to play there. And the only other thing to do, this is not justification, this is just the culture that I was in. The only other thing to do was to date everyone. That was it. Like, at camp, even in, like, elementary school, I show up, and they're like, who are you going to date this week? I'm like, what? What? I don't date. I'm not allowed to date. Like, my parents would kill me if I dated. And they're like, no, that's what we do. We're at church camp. Like, everybody has a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Well, what do they do? They just call them their boyfriend or girlfriend, and you just, like, write notes to each other, and that's all you do. And I'm like, interesting. I so wish we had iPhones that, like, apps would have helped so much because we would have had things to do. But we would date. <laughs> and dating, all it meant was just like, will you be my boyfriend? Will you be my girlfriend? Yes, no, checkbox, right? And that was it. Well, one day, I meet this girl, and her name is Shelly. Shelly was beautiful. At least I remember her as beautiful. Like, it was sixth grade. I don't know. And I was just about to find out that I needed glasses, but I didn't have them yet. So I have no idea, really, how Shelly looked, because I had not gotten my first pair of glasses. So she might not have been beautiful, but I thought she was. And we start talking, and she was, like, sporty. Loved UK basketball, loved the Bengals, loved the Reds. I was like, yeah, you're the perfect girl. In sixth grade, I found her, right? And so Shelly and I start talking, and as we talk throughout the day, I go to dinner, and as I sit down, my best friend Lee is sitting across from me, and as Lee is sitting across from me, I'm like, I think I'm going to like ask like, the girl to be my girlfriend. Like, I've never done this before. Like, this, I'm going to ask her. And I, he's like, who is she? And I'm like, it's, it's Shelly. And remember, everything is about me at that time. And I guess in that moment, Lee looked at me and was like, I hate you. And he just like storms off, doesn't talk to me. Middle school drama, right? Goes away. Won't talk to me the rest of the night until I hear from our other friend, Alex. And Alex comes over and he's just like, hey, um, Lee said that after like, you know, Vespers is over tonight, he's going to fight you in the dorm. <laughs> I'm like, what? What happened? We were having a nice dinner together of camp food, right? And then all of a sudden I tell him that I'm going to date Shelly and he leaves. I don't understand what happened. Like, did I say something? And so I'm I'm just a wreck. Lee's older than me. He's bigger than me. He has older brothers, so he's fought a lot more than me. Like, I just have a little sister. She was easy to beat up all the time. So... And I'm like, everything is just tense, and I'm upset, and I don't know what to do. My best friend is not going to be my best friend anymore, and I don't even know what I did wrong. I have no idea. And so the end of the night comes, and we get in the dorm, and, the, and the, like the, the high school leaders that were there had heard about it. And so they had decided to set up like a UFC ring before there was UFC. And they had gotten pillows out because they were going to let us pillow fight it out. I don't know. I have no idea. But so there's this ring and we walk in and as I walk into the ring, I'm like scared to death. You could tell I was like really big back then because I was like really tall and muscular because I'm huge now. And and so I'm like walking in this little like small, you know, 90 pound, sixth grade kid walking in with my pillow. And I'm like, why? I don't even know why we're fighting. And Lee walks into the middle and he's like, this, this is for Shelly. And I'm like, for Shelly? And he's like. Yeah, and he's like starting to swing at me as he's telling me why he's mad. It was like, it was therapy for 
Lee and on my face. And he starts swinging. And as he starts swinging, he's like, I told you yesterday that I liked her. And I'm like, I just dropped my pillow. And I'm like, I had no idea. I didn't listen. I'm sorry. You can have her. It's just a girl. Sorry, girls. Like, I've changed my opinion on that. Um, but that was what I said in the moment. Because I had no idea. And he drops the pillow. He's like, you didn't know. I told you. And I was like, when did you tell me? He was like, when we were playing basketball, I was like, hey, see that girl over there? She's Shelly. She's cute. That was it. And I was supposed to know. And in that moment, we cried. Sixth grade and seventh grade. It was weird. Because neither one of us had experienced conflict before. And in that moment, I'm like, over, like, so bad communication. Something, and not to mention, like, poor Shelly. Like, just getting tossed around between us in our pillow fight, right? Like, here's this victim girl that doesn't even know that she's doing anything except for being herself. And I remember that tension. That was a long time ago. And I can still remember that, that, that I walked away from that conversation thinking, it is so easy to make someone else your enemy when you didn't hear what they said. And it was just something silly that Lee had said, between, but it, 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 it reshaped me even from that moment. It was I didn't hear what he said. I didn't hear his perspective. All I wanted was to protect my own desire. I saw what I thought I should have in order to be what I thought I should be, and I was going to go take it. Shelly got onto it really quickly, and the next day, neither one of us dated her because she was way smarter than us. And she's like, yeah, I, you don't get to fight over me. I'll choose you, thank you very much. No and no. <laughs> yeah, I know, really smart girl. She probably was beautiful then. She is smart, smarter than us little goofballs. But I remember thinking, I didn't hear you. And I'm just trying to build my own thing. And I thought this morning, if you just heard my little sixth grade story, and if we started from there in this conversation about James 4, maybe we could get somewhere in this world. Maybe. Maybe today as we read through this scripture, and maybe we're going to be convicted by it because I was, because James does not pull any punches when he writes. Maybe the one thing that we need to remember is to hear what everyone is saying before we throw a punch, before we protect what's ours. I think that's the precursor. But I also think that there are some things that we might need to address inside of ourselves to find some satisfaction from God instead of ourselves in order to endure this fighting that is around us. And if there is hope in Jesus that I believe there is to overcome it and to start to change the trajectory of the conversations that are around us. So I'm going to talk about three things this morning. We're first going to talk about provision. We're going to talk about protection. And we're going to talk about power. 
This morning we're going to talk about provision, protection, and power. If you have a Bible or you want to look up on the screen, if you look at James chapter 4, it says, starting in verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covenant and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that this it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? I'm going to pause right there in the beginning. So James is a jerk. Just throw that out. You can laugh at that. Um, but he is right. He called us murderers. Us, not you. Like he's talking specifically to the Jews that have been dispersed around him, that are not living in community together, but they have been dispersed into other communities. And he's reaching out to them and he's saying, wait a minute, the world is against us. Like Rome, by world, what he means in that context is Rome. He really means Rome. What he would say, if he could say it out loud is, if you give in to Rome, that's what he means specifically, because that's what he sees in front of him, is this Roman government that is crucifying Jews, that are lining up Jews along the roads when it comes to a Jewish New Year, when they're walking into Passover, that they're lining the roads with crucified Jews just to say, you're going to line up with us or else. Jesus was not the only Jew crucified. He was the one who got up. And so that what is being written, James is being is writing to a community of saying, wait a minute, the world is against us like they're hurting us. They are overwhelming us. Rome, in his perspective, is our enemy. Don't line up with them. But what he's saying is don't. It's not about the fight with them. He's not even concerned with that. He's saying, why in the world, when everyone else is fighting with us, would we be fighting each other? Why are we doing this? Why are we quarreling and fighting? And he would say that when we are the instigators of the fight within our own communities, that we are like murderers. And we would pause in that moment and say, wait, that's a little harsh, right? Like, that's extreme. I've never killed anyone. So why would James say you are murderers when he knows that they're not literally murdering anyone? It's to get our attention. You see, the best way to write if you were a Jewish rabbi would be to write in a way that the audience would sit around in a circle and discuss whatever you wrote. If it was really clear what the meaning was, they found no purpose in it. They wanted the purpose to be, if I write this and you sit around in a circle and you dialogue together and you can come to a unified truth that is within the context of what I'm writing, then not only will you know the truth, but you'll be unified by the truth and you will align with it. Does that make sense? Like if, if I, if someone comes and tells me what to do, I then have to decide whether or not I agree with the person or I like the person or the person is trustworthy as to whether or not I agree with them. But if someone gives me an idea and says, sit around, discuss this, wouldn't it be true that if you are fighting amongst yourselves, you are like murderers? Talk amongst yourselves. And the communities would sit around each other and say, what does he mean? Like, I I didn't kill anyone, but I probably killed your passion in order to make sure I have my passion. I probably killed your idea 
in order to validate my idea. I probably killed your identity in order to box everyone into my identity. So yeah, I get it. When I fight, there's usually a winner and a loser. And the loser's ideas and identities die. Okay, I'm in. I don't want to fight because I don't want to kill especially the people around me that I love so much because I don't want to make them clone me. I don't want to make them judge me. I want to invite them into a story with me. And then he says that if you're fighting and quarreling, you are like adulterers. Well, adultery in this context is simply this, right? Adultery is that instead of looking at the covenant that I'm a part of to bring me satisfaction, I'm looking for something else to satisfy me. Isn't that a definition of adultery? Like, instead of looking at the covenant that I was given to bring satisfaction, my marriage, instead of looking at my marriage to bring me satisfaction, emotionally, mentally, or physically, I am looking for someone else to satisfy me and my desires that is outside of the covenant that I'm in. And so in this context, James would say, you're fighting, when you're fighting, your guilt makes you adulterous because the covenant of God is the covenant that you're married to. And if you go look at the covenant that the world is offering you, you're sleeping with this world as James defines it instead of with the bridegroom that is Jesus. He's specifically talking about Jesus there. He's specifically talking about the new covenant. And he's saying, if you go and try to satisfy your own desires and pick fights and quarrel and create anarchy, what you're saying is Jesus isn't enough. That his covenant with you is not enough and you need to go satisfy yourself. Which, if any of you have been victims of or been the practices, practicers of adultery and you have redeemed that, what you have found is that when you come back and you find that the person within the covenant relationship that you have has everything that you need to be satisfied, and if they don't have it, you probably don't need it or you can work on building it together, then you will find a marriage that is one again. You can be unified through that. And the beauty is that redeeming everything is always better than destroying it. But then he goes on and he says in verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And this is where we want to spend our last few minutes talking about these three things. Because what James says in that verse of resist the devil and he will flee from you. It's code. I don't know if you know the Bible is written with like tons of code in it that whatever is written usually means something else or draws into something else. If you were to read the entire book of James partnered with the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, you would notice that James in his writing matches up exactly with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The progression through them go the same. Except in this passage, James is giving us a key into what he's saying before the Sermon on the Mount. And if you look at Matthew chapter 4, right before we have the Sermon on the Mount, something happens to Jesus. He's been baptized. He's been taken by the Spirit into the desert. He spends 40 days and 40 nights in this desert. And at the end of of 40 days and 40 nights, he is confronted by his enemy, Satan, the devil. 
It's interesting, Ewan McGregor just came out and he's in this new movie where he actually portrays Jesus in the movie. And in this scene where they discussed um, how to do the temptation, how Satan would appear, and they actually dressed Satan up to look like the mirror image of Jesus. Like physically they looked the same. And it was like Jesus was talking to himself. And that Satan is often a mirror image of us talking to ourselves, but his approach the words that satan says when he talks back to us looking like us is to edify our own desire while when jesus speaks to us it's to edify his kingdom and so satan in matthew chapter 4 approaches jesus and it says the tempter came to him in verse 3 the tempter came to him and said if you are the son of god command these stones to become loaves of bread But Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Resist the temptation to provide for yourself. It's really what Jesus and James are saying here when you link these two passages together. Now this, this, this is hard. Right. Because our, our, our concept goes, wait a minute, if you don't provide for yourself, James earlier said faith alone is nothing. You have to work at it. You have to put the time in. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about that. We should all just be freeloaders on the kingdom of God and not provide for ourselves and our families. What here's what Jesus is doing in this context. A rock has a purpose. The purpose of the rock is to be a rock. It's not to be bread. It's not to be made into something else. So it's interesting that in this moment, Jesus responds to Satan by saying, I will not provide by myself by making something else become something that it's not supposed to be. You get that? That provision, we create fights when we try to provide for ourselves by making someone or something or the world around us become something else that it wasn't supposed to be. We provide for ourselves when we make other people, 27 million in this world, slaves. 27 million slaves in the world. When we try to provide for ourselves and we enslave others, we're lining up with the world, with the tempter. 163 million orphans in this world. What's that a product of? That's product of someone who created having to provide for themselves and a child becoming something it wasn't supposed to be, abandoned. Right. So when I try to provide for myself and I turn something else into something that it's not supposed to be, I'm going to create dissension, I'm going to create fights, and that's aligning with the world. And I would encourage you this week to think on that. What are you trying to provide for yourself that is demanding that someone or something else cease to be what it was created to be? And then Satan, in his response from Jesus, moves on. He doesn't linger on provision, but he goes on to the next and he says, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Then Jesus said to him, It again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Protection. 
Satan is attacking Jesus and saying, protect yourself. Here, look, if you threw yourself off of this, the angels would come and they would protect you. Show the world that you can protect yourself. When we choose to invite the world, to invite spiritual beings, to invite God, to protect us and what is ours just so that we can show everyone that we're protected, we're going to create fights. Satan knew there's no point. There's no point in jumping off the mountain. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't fulfill anything. It just proves, it would prove to the world, oh look, there's a man, he jumped, angel saved him, that must be Messiah. And if protecting himself is the only way to prove that he is the self-sacrificing savior of the world, then by protecting himself and not being self-sacrificing, he therefore undercuts his own legs. And so what I would contend is that when we as Christians make, make sure I'm okay with this. When we as Christians only make law, only make church doctrine that protects us from everyone else, we create fights and quarrels. We must be careful. That if I get protection, everyone gets protection in this story. It's the way that Jesus wrote it. He said, don't test God by trying to protect yourself. So my question is, what boundaries, what rules, what doctrine, what thought... Have you built around your house, yourself, or your family that is protecting you and harming them? And then the follow-up question is, can you describe who they or them are? Can you write that out? It's homework week. If you're protected, who's exposed? And if they're exposed... Who are they and how would they be protected? And can what protects you also protect them? And if it can, if it can protect all of us, it therefore very well may be the kingdom of God. But if it cannot, if it only protects you, if it only protects us, whatever us is, it's not true. It's not right. It's not kingdom. If they are exposed so that we can be protected, it flies in the face of a Messiah who exposed all that he was as fully God and man so that all could be protected under the grace and blood of that. It's difficult. It's difficult to muddle through, but it's the question we should be asking. And then says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only will you serve. Power. The last thing that Satan offered to Jesus I will give you power over this world. I will give you the power to control it 
I will give you the power to make them do whatever you want. If you will just tell me that I'm in control. If you will give me power over you, I will give you power over them. And Jesus responds and says, no. Only God, only God has ultimate power. Only he will I serve. We create fights when we try to take power. When we try to hold on to power. When we're afraid to lose power. In our personal relationships, in our work environments, in our family, with our children. How many parenting stories could we tell about how the fight really as mom or dad was about us not giving power to our children and our fear in some moments was, if I say yes to this, you have control over me. And I'm afraid to say yes to this, even though I don't know that it's a big deal. How many times as friends, as students, have you felt, I need to make sure you know what I think about you because I have power over you and I need you to do what I want you to do. How many times in work environments have we manipulated the responsibility and the power that we have in order to get what we need, in order to keep the power that we want? How many times have we been tempted by power? It comes in in the most interesting ways. For me, power is words. I'm I'm quick, witted often. In middle school and high school, that turned into really damaging sarcasm toward people that were my friends. Why? Because I was short. And if I'm short and you want to take power away from me by saying I'm too short to do that or I'm too this or I'm too that, I will use my words and I will damage you so badly that you will never want to offend me again and now I have power over you. And so I would use it. Those words turned into an art for me, though, as I started to go into ministry and started to work with students and to lead youth. And I would write sermons all the time and write blogs and messages. And so I found that words were something that I enjoyed doing, but I often found my identity in them. And that if I read something that I disagreed with, my words could be stronger than someone else's and I would use them to damage. And so there were several times in ministry that I wrote and sent things in the early stages, right? Like 20 years old, youth minister, a parent tells me that I'm damaging their children because they're never home and they quit the football team for Jesus. And I reply back completely arrogantly. And I learned over time, I just want them to do what I want them to do. And so I found my favorite, favorite tool as a writer it's called the delete key i love the delete key i now have a practice where i write something i walk away from it go get another cup of coffee like my 12th of the day and then i come back in i sit back down and i look at that and go i can't say that delete it took me years to do that but it took me years to also realize that i found power in words and as long as i could control the words then i could control the person that was reading the words and one day someone else started to use the thing that i loved words in order to manipulate a community that i loved global orphans i love spending my life investing in emerging generations and the children that are there and someone his name is ben <clears throat> Ben decided to take to Facebook 
to tell the world why short-term mission trips and Americans helping global orphans was a bad idea and was actually enabling the problem. He had decided he was really good with words and that he was right. And so he took to this platform and said, short-term mission trips are damaging global youth. And then he had a link to a blog that someone else had written. And so immediately I took to this, you know, great platform for debate, right? Like we've all seen, you know, recently we've all started defriending people because of debates on Facebook. And I start typing a response like, how dare you, Ben? I'm going to, I had to delete a few words. And then I look at it and I'm thinking, I'm about to tell the world that Ben is so wrong. And I mean, it was, it was a really good reply. It was so right. And I had examples and I had stories because I've lived it. I've lived how short-term mission trips can influence people. And so I write this whole like angry thing and I look at it. And as I read it, thankfully, James 4, it works. Because I looked at it and I thought, this is not humble. This is not helpful. I will provide the identity that I need in myself by destroying Ben's identity. And Ben's identity being destroyed is terrible because he's a senior minister of a church that I love, actually. Why would I do that to him? I could protect. Oh, no. My Facebook post isn't going to protect one orphan in any country around the world. It's not going to do a thing. They're not going to read it. And no one's going to look at it and go, oh, look at what Chris said. He's got our back. And it wouldn't even protect me. It would expose me. And it's not the kind of power that I wanted. So I deleted it. And chose instead, because Ben and I were really close friends, to go to email. And I sent Ben an email and said, Ben, I love you. I care about you. Before you jump to a conclusion... Would you go on a trip with me? Would you come? Would you hang out with me? The whole time I'm typing it, I'm thinking, I'm going to hate this because I don't, the last thing I want on an airplane going to Monterey to see my friends is someone who hates short-term missions. Like, this is going to be a pain. He's going to question everything. He's going to offend all of my friends. Everyone who works it back-to-back with me is going to be like, Chris, why did you bring that guy here? He's our enemy. That's what I'm thinking. And so I type it anyway and think, but if I don't invite him into the story, how can he know? And so I hit send. And I just want you to watch a two-minute video of what happened next. My name is Ben, and I've always wanted to change the world, but I didn't know how. But the one thing I was certain of is that it wouldn't include short-term mission trips. To me, it felt like every day when I saw pictures on Facebook of my friends and family on those trips, I couldn't help but wonder if they were doing more harm than good. One day, I read a blog that articulated every negative thing I was feeling about short-term trips, and I tweeted it to the world. That's when my friend Chris challenged me in a way I wasn't expecting and invited me on a trip with back-to-back ministries. Not being one to back down from a challenge, I found myself in the airport with a missions team ready to prove him wrong. 
It didn't take long for my worst fears to come true. While on a field trip to an amusement park, I was responsible for four kids who couldn't stand to wait in line for more than 30 seconds. So during one of the million times they escaped the line and I was chasing after them, it hit me. This is exactly how Jesus chases after me. That night, at a worship experience, Chris told me about a back-to-back program that provides for teenagers and how there were more kids in need than spots available. It made me start to wonder, what does the future look like for my new friends? The next day, we were working on housing for that program, and I learned that construction was paused because they were waiting on funding for the roof. I immediately shot my hand up and asked, how much? $4,000, he said. Without hesitation, I said, we've got this. My church will take care of that. And we did. I raised the money, and I'm leading two trips back to Mexico in the next year. In the end, it's pretty funny that it took a short-term mission trip to show me that it's not my job to change the world. My job is just to be a part of a community of people making an actual difference in the world. And so from the... Sixth grade kid who couldn't figure out why his friend was mad at him. To the 37-year-old guy who gets to be a part of that. I just leave you with these words. He gives more grace. This is why it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He will provide. He will protect. And it's his power that will resurrect and redeem. So as the fights are around us and the chaos continues to grow. I invite you into this story. Let's walk humbly together. Let's invite with our questions and listen and give grace because it's that same grace that was given to us. Because we just never know. Our enemy might have some resources that become a key part to the story that we're trying to write. Let's pray. Jesus, in your name and your name alone. Can the wars that surround this world be transformed by your kingdom? And so it's in your name that we go. Give us the grace to go in spite of our past. And give us the humility to ask the questions that we're afraid to ask. Give us the confidence to trust you, to provide through the work that you've given us but not through making anyone something that they're not. By protecting that which your kingdom protects, but by not exposing anyone else. And it's your kingdom, your power, your glory, forever and ever. Amen. Have a great week.